Good morning to you here present with us, to those watching online, welcome. What a day we have to make much of the goodness and the grace and the greatness and the glory of our God. We get to do that. We get to come here in the heat and bask in something hotter, the glory of God, graciously provided to us through the gospel of His Son. How remarkable is that? It is a privilege. It is also a privilege to turn to God's Word together, and so if you have a Bible, please open up your Bible to Exodus chapter 7. We're going to read verses 14 through 25, but we're going to consider three and a half chapters. So you have some reading to do in the week ahead, is essentially what I'm asking of you. But we're going to consider today nine plagues that God pours out onto Egypt. To continue our boxing theme, this is the montage portion of the fight. You know, between the first round and the knockout round, all the rounds sort of get in this cheesy montage with 80s music, right? So this is our, our montage moment. But we're going to consider this in light of what God is doing. He's delivering His people, defeating His enemies, and defending His glory. He is the King of glory. And we will see that on display here in our look at these nine plagues. So let's follow along. Let's read about the first plague. Chapter 7, verses 14 to the end of the chapter. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. Take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die. The Nile will stink. The Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, their ponds, all their pools of water, so that they may become blood And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of the servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile." There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Let's pray. Guys, we come to your word as we consider these nine plagues, as we 
considered this part of the Exodus story. We pray that our hearts uh, would receive and believe and trust and look to your word as words of life, that it would direct us to see your character, your worth, your glory. May that move our hearts to want to worship you with our very lives. God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Jim Hamilton is a, uh, a, a theologian, a professor, and he wrote a volume called God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. That's the title of the book. It's a thick book. God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. And he makes this major observation about the major theme of the Bible. Salvation always comes through judgment. Salvation for the nation of Israel at the Exodus came through the judgment of Egypt. And this pattern is repeated throughout the Old Testament, becoming paradigmatic even into the New Testament. When God saves his people, he delivers them by bringing judgment on their enemies. Through the saving of his people, God defeats his enemies and defends his honor. Through the saving of his people, God defeats his enemies and defends his honor. God's glory is upheld. And for you and I, this becomes our greatest good. The greatest good that could ever happen into your life is God rescuing you by defeating his enemies and defending his glory. Today, we are going to consider nine plagues in a montage of judgment in a montage of salvation through judgment, in a montage of God being glorified through salvation in judgment. In the plagues against Egypt, we see Yahweh defend His glory, defeat His enemies, and deliver His people through judgment. And as we consider that today, my hope is that for our time in considering these plagues, it would cause our hearts to recognize the gloriousness of our God and want to make much of Him in our lives. That we want to make much of Him because He's awesome. Now, I've been using boxing as a sort of word picture through this portion of Exodus. I've made much of a few boxers because they were awesome. How much more? I mean, it even seems silly to even say it. How much more should our lives make much of God whose awesome power in His defeating of His enemies, defending of His glory, and delivering His people is present in the pages of Scripture and in our lives? That's my heart, my hope for us. That we would just want to live to and for the glory of God because it's worth it. So let's consider these plagues. Let's consider a few things about them, what they display to us in, in understanding that through judgment, God's bringing about victory. And that's okay. In fact, that's great. That's incredible news. So these Plagues display some things about Yahweh. First, it displays Yahweh's ex escalating judgment. 
As we consider these plagues, we're going to see that the judgment escalates. So much so that, secondly, we're going to see that the judgment of God that he pours out on his enemies is devastating. It's a leave no doubt. God wins. And then thirdly, we find that it's a very purposeful judgment. God doesn't react to the situation like you and I would react if we're wronged. We can be mean and, 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 and sinful, but God does his judgment perfect without sin for a great and grand, glorious purpose. And hopefully, as we consider this, it would move our hearts to worship him, and, and not just worship him from 1030 to 1130 or 5 to 6, or in our living rooms, or wherever we are watching this, but that we would worship Him with our very lives, that our very life would be one of worship, because He's worth it. So let's consider these together. First, let's consider the escalating judgment that God pours out. Here in in these nine plagues, we see a pattern of escalation. A pattern of escalation, where each of these plagues, there's an increased intensity As you look through them, and I would encourage you to do this, I'm going to do more of a 30,000-foot flyover of these plagues. So if you want to dip down on the ground, I'd encourage that study this week. But from 30,000 feet, looking down and seeing the hole, we find three cycles of the nine plagues. Three cycles. Within each cycle, the intensity of judgment that is poured out increases. So that in cycle one, we have plague one, two, and three. So it increases in intensity. But then also, the cycles themselves increase. Cycle two is more than cycle one. Cycle three is more than cycle two, and so forth. There's an increased intensity. So let's consider these cycles, which would have lasted around four to five months in Egypt. Four to five months. Four to five months ago, we met here on March 8th, and, and it's been four to five months since then. Imagine, imagine if these four to five months would have actually gotten worse. Here we are now, we're back, we're providing a safe opportunity for us to gather together in the morning or in the evening, online. So it didn't get worse. So imagine it getting so devastatingly bad in the amount of time it's been for us in dealing with the coronavirus. Just as a point of context, we actually have a time frame, even though these last four and five months have, spent, have been like three years, we have a time frame to actually think through what happened here in Egypt. So that leads us then to the first cycle. Cycle one is plagues one, two, and three. They're briefer and they're less severe. These are the plagues where the Nile is turned into blood, where frogs get everywhere, gross, and where gnats show up, which would actually be better rendered biting insects, so perhaps some sort of gnat-mosquito hybrid of supreme annoyance. But again, these plagues were more of an annoyance and an inconvenience for everyone. And as we look in this first cycle, what we see present are the magicians. In plague one and plague two, the magicians, they are able to duplicate on a smaller scale, mind you, what happened when Moses and Aaron did what God commanded them to do. But in the third one, 
They could do nothing about the biting insects, even stating that this must be the finger of God. In this first cycle, Pharaoh's heart remains unmoved. That is, it's hardened. In fact, as we read earlier, he didn't even really take it to heart. Like I said, these were more of an inconvenience than they were anything that would really catch his attention. And if he saw his magicians do something similar, he didn't really care. His heart remained hard to the situation. That's cycle one. Cycle two is plagues four, five, and six. Here we have an increased severity with a greater impact on Egypt. These are the plagues of the swarms of flies, the animal disease that wipes out the livestock, and then the boils or skin sores that happen to the people. There's something different that happens within this cycle of plagues. There's a separation that occurs. The people of God, the Hebrews, did not receive the judgment that God poured out. It only went to the Egyptians. The Hebrews experienced none of it. No flies. Their livestock remained healthy and strong. And their skin just as healthy and strong as it was before. And only once in this cycle do we see the magicians. They show up in Plague 6, which is the skin source. This is the last time we see the magicians in this Exodus account. And in this last time, we find them lying down on the ground. They couldn't even stand before Moses. Beat down. Well, what about Pharaoh? Well, in this cycle, Pharaoh, his heart was hardened, and in that was continually deceptive toward the people of God. He would say, yes, I will let you go. Just get rid of this plague. As soon as the plague subsided, he changed his mind and did not let the people go. So he just was very deceptive. So his hardness of heart showed up in deception. Then we come to the third and final cycle. Plague 7, 8, and 9. There is one more plague, and we're going to consider that next week. But plague 7, 8, and 9 increased all the more in severity and brought about major losses for Egypt. This is... These are the plagues of the hailstorm, the locusts, and darkness. And once again, the Hebrews are spared from these plagues. They're all poured out on Egypt. And in this particular cycle, there's specific reference to it being poured out on Pharaoh, his household, his servants, all of his stuff. And this plague, this cycle of plagues was so severe, so major, that even Pharaoh's servants said this in Exodus 10, 7, which is during plague 8, which is the plague of the locusts. The servant, Pharaoh's servants said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? 
Don't you know that you've already lost? And what about Pharaoh in this particular cycle? Well, the first cycle, his heart was hard, and but indifferent. The second cycle, his heart was hard, but then acted deceptively. In this third one, you see a hard heart in turmoil. He is literally a mess. He is conflicted and crushed and angry and anxious and suspicious. He is a mess. God has just crushed him. He's admitted, I've sinned. Get out of here. No, I hate you. Get back here. Like That's what Pharaoh has done. He is erratic, beaten. He, he's, he's lost. Everything is ruined. And the pattern that this, each of these cycles has, you can sort of overlay one on top of the other. You can match them up. You can put plagues 1, 4, and 7 together. Plagues 2, 5, and 8 together. Plagues 3, 6, and 9 together. Because they're all aligned. It's sort of the same pattern happening each time. In plagues 1, 4, and 7, we find Moses and Aaron having an outdoor morning confrontation with Pharaoh. In plagues 2, 5, and 8, we find a shorter indoor confrontation with Pharaoh, most likely in his courts, but also much shorter. And then in plagues 3, 6, and 9, there's, it's all outdoor. There's no interaction at all with Pharaoh. It's just judgment being poured out. Each cycle begins with a greater explanation and opportunity for Pharaoh to let the people go. Then the cycle moves into a shorter interaction that basically is, no, really, you should let the people go. And then it's closed with just judgment for not letting the people go. Pharaoh went from indifference to deception to erratic hardness of heart. And it's important for us to see that, see that play out in his life, because we need to take it into consideration. We see what happens to a hard heart. It breaks others around it until it is broken. A hard heart breaks others around it until it's broken. But notice who Pharaoh's hard heart breaks. It's not the Hebrews. It's those closest to him. It's his own people. It's his own household. And it's eventually his own firstborn son. A hard heart breaks others and those most closest to it. And the hard heart will be broken, mind you. A hard heart, I'll say this again, a hard heart will be broken. It will be broken either by being crushed under the weight of judgment or it will be broken under the repentance of the weight of grace. Either way, it will be broken. That's a sobering, startling, 
cause us to pause and to reflect and to think and to consider our own hearts. A hard heart will either break by judgment or by grace. And I think if there's anything that these plagues would tell us about that, is that you would much rather have your heart broken by grace than by judgment. It's serious, it's sobering, it's indeed a warning. Now, this escalating judgment that we see played out in these nine plagues is also quite devastating. It's quite devastating. It is a picture of devastation. When God pours out His judgment, He devastates. He's not prevented or thwarted in any way. Nothing can stop His judgment or ease His judgment. God's judgment is a force that cannot be contained. You cannot bottle up a tornado. You can't defer a hurricane. You cannot, of your own, move, change, or appease the judgment of God. It is a picture of devastation. And in this devastation, here in these plagues, and this is where like, the Bible just geeks me out because it's so unified. It's much more unified than we think. This is incredible. It is a, a picture of devastation that looks back and also looks forward. It, it makes us look back into Genesis, and it also makes us anticipate and look forward to Revelation. But it is a picture of devastation. First, this look back into Genesis. What we find here in the plagues is an echo of the creation account of Genesis chapter 1, but in the reverse. It's a decreation. It's, it's a destruction that goes from created order to chaos. It's the opposite of the order that we find in Genesis chapter 1. Very quickly, I'll just sort of breeze through each day. Think about this in light of the plagues. In day 6 of the creation story in Genesis chapter 1, we see the creation of animals and of man. In the plagues, we see eventually the death of the firstborn and the wiping out of animal life. In day five, we see the creation of birds and sea life. In the plagues, we see the death of fish and frogs and whatnot. In day four, is the creation of the lights in the sky. But in the plagues, we see darkness and, and, and the obscuring of those lights in the hailstorm. In day three, we see dry land separated and vegetation, life brought forth, plant life brought forth. But in the plagues, we see the destruction of all plant life in Egypt. In day two, the waters are ordered and, and structured and separated. But in the plagues, it is straight up chaos. Water is now blood. And the hail is so horrible that it kills anything in its line. And then day one, we see light out of the darkness. And in the plagues, we see darkness over the light. It is a total and devastating, complete destruction of Egypt, of God's enemies. It is a decreation 
Meanwhile, the Hebrews are experiencing a recreation. They, their, their experience is an echo of what we see in Genesis 1. They, they are brought out of the darkness and chaos of slavery, and they are brought to a, a land. They are experiencing the separation of waters and dry land as they are rescued through the Red Sea. But the Egyptians experience the judgment of God. Its severity is seen in a return of darkened chaos, the loss of creation. If you ever wanted to speculate on what hell would be like, there it is. And this most soberly is what will come to all those who reject Christ. Now that sentence gets real. That, that, that's, a, that's a weighty sentence. All those who reject Christ will experience that. That leads us then to see how it foreshadows the very end, the very last day. The plagues point forward to an even greater and more devastating judgment that God will pour out on his enemies. Revelation, especially Revelation 16 onward, uses, actually uses the imagery of the plague's account to demonstrate the judgment that God will pour out on all unbelievers at the very end. And what you see in Revelation will seem like the plagues, except way more intense, way more global, way more so severe. This is heart-wrenching. This is sobering. This is heavy. But I will say this, that day that we see in Revelation, that last day, so far, is not today. That's not this day. This day, however, is a day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. This is not the last day. By God's grace, this is a day of salvation. That God delivers His people by defeating His enemies and defending His glory through judgment. But that judgment is poured out not on you and I who definitely deserve it, but that judgment is poured out on His Son on the cross. Today is not the last day because the cross stands in the place of it. Right now is the day of salvation. Right now is the day. So it's a today versus the last day. Today is a day of salvation. The last day is a day of judgment. So our hope rests in the fact that God has given us this day, this day, to hear and to receive and to believe and to trust 
his good news, his gospel wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who lived a life that you and I will never live, who died a death that you and I definitely deserved, and who defeated an enemy we had no hope of defeating. He did all in our place. He paid it in full. He rescues us from its bondage. And He delivers us to a God who welcomes us into glory to dwell with Him for all eternity. Today is a day of salvation. Like Psalm 95 says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, not tomorrow. Don't wait until you can come to church without a mask. Today is if you hear His voice. Do not harden your hearts. Today. Or think about Hebrews chapter 3, which echoes Psalm 95. Written to the church. So it's written to church folk. People who are in church. And it's still got an evangelistic bent to it. It's calling church folk to trust Jesus. Don't trust you being in church. Trust Jesus today. Listen to the seriousness of this admonishment and encouragement. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Trinity is our community marked with that kind of care. Are we in each other's lives in such a way that we love one another so deeply and earnestly that we can lovingly say to each other, let us not go down this pathway of, a, of an evil, unbelieving heart that is following after the deceitfulness of sin. It's these kinds of passages like the plagues and like these words here in Hebrews that, that just, you can't play church. I mean, we, we often do that accidentally, not intentionally, but there is a seriousness to this life that God has rescued us to. And for those of us who can feel overwhelmed by our own hearts or our circumstances or our situations or the things that we struggle with, we wonder if any of this matters. So I want to say to you, Romans 1.16, there is something far greater than your sin, your hard heart, your circumstances and situations in your life, and that is the power of God. And where is that displayed? In the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is, not was, is, is right now, is. God's power on display to deliver His people, defeat His enemies, defend His glory through judgment on the cross. And God will do that. He will deliver His people. He will defeat His enemies. He will defend His glory. And judgment will be poured out. It is either poured out 
on Jesus on the cross for his people or by Jesus on his horse over his enemies. And I implore you and plead with you, run to the cross because you cannot run from his horse. This is weighty and serious, but it is also life-giving and liberating and hope-filled. And in these plagues, we get all that. The Bible is so rich, so incredible. Yes, it's escalating judgment. Yes, it's devastating judgment, but it is purposeful. It, is a, it has a purpose of glory. Each cycle begins with a purpose statement behind Yahweh's actions. Plague 1, plague 4, plague 7. The beginnings of each of those cycles. In plague 1, Exodus seven seventeen, we have this purpose statement. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. In plague 4, Exodus eight twenty two, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of all the earth. Plague 7, it's stated twice in Exodus 9, 14 and 16. So that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God gets glory in the salvation of his people and God gets glory in the judgment of his enemies. The shortened form of that sentence is God gets glory. It is His. He is going to deliver His people and defeat His enemies and defend His worthiness. Glory and judgment is a theme throughout the Bible. It is actually prayed and sung in Psalm 83 and other psalms. But to highlight these words, Let them, the enemies of God, be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the Most High over all the earth. And God's glory is seen in salvation. It gives us the opportunity to join the psalmist in Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord glory to His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. God rescues us from our sin and restores us to why we were created, why we even exist, to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. And He will do that in rescuing His people and defeating His enemies and defending His glory. Now, what might that mean for us today? Well, many things, for one. But three that came to my mind as I thought through this. For those of us here or watching, we may need to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That as we get this sobering, weighty display of God's judgment in the deliverance of His people, the defeating of His enemies, and the defending of His glory, 
that it reveals to our own hearts that they have been hardened by sin and that we are far from God. And the response for such a heart would be one of repentance, which is an acknowledgement that my life has been lived in opposition to God, and it is a turning away from that through a turning to God in faith in Jesus Christ. That you see in Jesus one who lived and died in your place so that you would die and then live in His. So you repent, turn away, believe and trust and cling to Jesus. Maybe somebody in here, that's the application point for you, or watching or whatever. Second, what this might mean for us today is some of us may need to repent and reorder our lives so as to live as if the glory of God is worth it. That maybe our lives have been lived as if God is just simply there, but I get to kind of live however I want. I believe in Jesus, but I'm just sort of living whatever. And so maybe we hear this and we feel the weightiness of it and we realize, like, I just sort of give God half-hearted efforts and thoughts and affections and, 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 and desires, and, and I just kind of like meander around and And maybe this causes you to want to know this God far greater than you do. You don't effort your way up to this. But you come to know Him in His Word. Your heart gets transformed and your mind gets renewed as you see the glorious picture of your God in the pages of Scripture. So maybe your conviction is, I've been treating God as an app rather than the operating system. Thirdly, what might this mean for us today is that maybe there's some of us here who need to rest in the salvation secured and rejoice over the victory already won. Meaning, you've been living out your Christian life thinking that a lot of it rides on your efforts. That if you don't do enough of X, Y, and Z, God's going to be angry with you and kick you off the team. I want to say to you, don't diminish the gospel by thinking your efforts contribute to it. Think of what Jesus did in a perfect life, substitutionary death, and victory over the grave. It took God to rescue you. Rest in what God has done by His grace and mercy and rejoice. He has fought and won for you. Through the saving of his people, God defeats his enemies and defends his glory. His glory is upheld and this, for you and I, becomes our greatest good. May this cause our hearts to run to him, rest in him, rejoice over him, and rely upon him 
to bring him glory both now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. God, we pray and plead that you would help find our wandering hearts to you. You would help our hearts see your glory in the pages of your word. That it would cause in us a ever-increasing desire to live for your glory. God, also move in our hearts to be ones who want to make much of your gospel so that others who are far from you and without hope would come to know the gloriousness of your grace and the goodness of this salvation in Christ. May we not be afraid to hide this good news. May we not be ashamed of it, but rather live in light of it with such hope that when others ask of it, we're ready to share. God, would you rescue those who are fallen and strengthen those who are near to live for your glory both now and forevermore. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> well, if you would, please stand for our benediction. I want to close from the last few words of the little letter of Jude. Hear these words in closing. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, authority, be all, before all time and now and forevermore. Amen and amen.